Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, Episode 10, Month of March. And because this is the first episode of the month, we return to the Menologia Rustica. And because this is the first of the month, we return to the Menologia Rustica and see what it has to say. Month of March, 31 days, knowns on the 7th, day, 12 hours, night, 12 hours. Equinox on the 8th before the calends of April, March 25th. Sun in Pisces, domain of Minerva. Stakes are cut to support the vines. Three-month-old grain is sown. Cato the Elder has a few things to add, mostly for the benefits of farmers, of course. Perform the vow for the health of the cattle as follows. Make an offering to Mars Sylvanus in the forest during the daytime for each head of cattle. Three pounds of meal, four and a half pounds of bacon, four and a half pounds of meat, and three pints of wine. You may place the viands in one vessel, and the wine likewise in one vessel. Either a slave or a free man may make this offering. After the ceremony is over, consume the offering on the spot at once. A woman may not take part in this offering or see how it is performed. You may vow the vow every year if you wish. Well, we have 31 days to get around to that. We need to remember that according to the traditional calendar, March 1st is the beginning of the year. So, if you missed January 1st, you get a second chance now. And what better way to celebrate the springtime, or the coming of springtime, than to pay homage to the mothers of Rome. March 1st, the Matronalia, Matronalis Feriae, a preemptive marker of goodwill for the women who made the empire possible. In 375 BC, a temple was dedicated to Juno Licina, goddess of light and childbirth. Corralling data on this, or any other Roman matter, can be challenging, both as to reliability and changes of custom over time. Ovid is the go-to source for festivals with his fast eye, but is not infrequently contradicted by others. He reports women wearing floral headdresses, bringing flowers to the temple, and praying for easy labor. Flowers in March raises some questions. Husbands prayed for health and longevity of wives and of marriages. Latin has a reputation for exactitude and precision, not unwarranted, but it also has a lot of room for ambiguity when called for. Mothers and household matrons were expected, for a time at least, to wait on the household slaves, just as men were during December's Feast of Saturnalia. The world turned upside down for fun in December. In March, arguably, a small acknowledgement for all the work that the household slaves did throughout the year. So also the presents, which were either token, but went all the way up to considerable munus emoticum, nowhere described, but sounding rather like the sort of things that might turn up in lawsuits if household harmony ever broke down. The festival was significant enough that the emperor himself got involved. Or at least Vespasian did. 
He had lost his own wife, mother of his three children, sometime before he became emperor, but is nevertheless recorded as distributing holiday favors outside the family. Details, as is so often the case with ancient history, is lacking. In particular, the where and how is unknown, but as a politician, Vespasian, we can assume, appeared in some very public manner, perhaps at the Temple of Juno, perhaps at his house. For a politician or for a businessman, doing good deeds if no one is watching is just not worth doing. But again, how is it done? As emperor, you have a lot of clients to keep happy. Where do you draw the line, and how? Were recipients chosen and invited to drop by the temple or his house in advance, or was it first come, first serve? If chosen, on what basis? If not, was there a queue? Lots of senators' wives and mothers and daughters out there. How much would it take to sweeten them to keep that boy of a husband sweet? How trivial could the gift be, under the circumstances? We are, after all, talking about imperial presence, be they never so humble. A pen is just a pen until it has a White House logo stamped on it. Then it becomes an heirloom. Happy New Year, AUC 832. Best wishes from your Emperor Vespasian. Is that how it went down? Who knows? Apparently, the Flavian gifts were not up to snuff. Suetonius tells us that they were a feature of his reign, but that they did nothing to erase Vespasian's reputation for being close-fisted. Once a cheapskate, always a cheapskate. March 1st had a second and allied claim to fame. It was also the Dies Natalis of Mars, Mars being Juno's son. He was also, you'll recall, father, if neglectful father, of Romulus and Remus, but put that aside for the moment, who decided that the month would be named for him rather than for her as anyone's guest. Well, we are entering the season of war, and that would last until October. In any event, there was a commingling of commemoration. Laurel wreaths are hung in the Regia Curia and on houses of major flamens, priests, a little ceremony at the eternal flame of the Temple of the Vestals, overseen by Vestal Virgins. There was, of course, a religious side to the Dies Natalis of Mars, overseen by the Sodalis Salii. Salii, from Latin salire, that is to say, jumping or leaping the College of Leaping Priests, then. War is a serious business, despite what Hollywood would have you believe. Mars was a serious god, and the Romans took him and war seriously. The priests, in turn, took their leaping seriously. The tradition is very old. Back in the time of King Numa Pompilius, Rome was going through one of its periodic plague seasons. Distressed people, prayers to heaven, and one day a bronze shield fell from the skies, a gift from Mars, straight into Numa's hands. Well, when gods do anything that is out of the ordinary, and especially when their doing involves material objects, tangible material objects, in this case theoretically useful material objects, men will look for answers and explanations. 
The meaning came from Egidia, water nymph and girlfriend of Numa. She came out with a prophecy that wherever the shield should be, there Mars would offer protection. Powerful stuff, you'll agree, and it made sense. The Romans went from considering the shield not so much as a curious artifact and more like a serious defensive instrument of war. Seen in that light, they began to worry that once word of this thing got out, Rome could expect serious attempts at taking the celestial shield away. We are, again, talking about the days before Rome had high walls, and during which Rome had any number of belligerent enemies. Algeria had a solution to that problem. What Rome should do is to have its best shield makers make eleven exact copies of the Divine Defender and hang them all up on the wall of the Mars Temple. Anyone who thought to steal the original would have a one in twelve chance of getting it wrong. Unless, of course, he stole all twelve, but that would take some considerable doing. So at least the argument. In any event, each March on the first of the year, the twelve good boys and true, and they were just boys, patricians all, and this was most likely their first dip into the waters of public service, would remove the shields from the temple wall. What must they have weighed? And begin the ceremonies that would mark the beginning of the year for the other than matriarchal side of things. Presumably, there was a certain amount of crisscrossing in Rome while adherents of the two faiths were getting on with the business of their respective gods and whatever goodies came from their respective worship. Of the Salii, some aspects changed over time, as will happen, and different Latin writers give us their observations. There seems to have been two sets of crews, the classic Salii Palatini, dedicated to Mars Gradivus, he who walks into battle, and a second crew, allegedly invented by Augustus, the Salii Collini of Quirinal Hill. A young Julius Caesar was one participant. So also, later on, Marcus Aurelius, appointed by the Emperor Adrian. The sources claim that he was all of eight years old. Also something of a stickler. The Historia Augustae, biographies of emperors and would-be emperors between 117 and 284 AD, written in the late 4th century, paint a fuller picture complete with omens of personal greatness yet to come. While in this college, Aurelius received an omen of his future rule, for when they were all casting their crowns on the banqueting couch of the god, according to the usual custom, his crown, as if placed there by his hand, fell on the brow of Mars. In this priesthood, he was leader of the dance, seer and a master, and consequently both initiated and dismissed a great number of people. And in these ceremonies, no one dictated the formulas to him. For all of them, he had learned by himself. However proud the family might be of such a boy, winning the crown toss and all, his is no way for the average nine-year-old to make friends. Not that he cared much about friends. He would, after all, end up as the figure of Stoic philosophy, author of the Meditations. But back to the Salii. 
The ceremonies mentioned above, the performance art that brought them and the shields out of the temples and into the streets, what was that all about? A song and dance number, so far as we can tell. Plutarch describes the proper attire and paraphernalia. Clad in purple tunics, girt with broad belts of bronze, wearing bronze helmets on their heads, and carrying a small dagger with which to strike the shields. The shields were in a figure of eight pattern, long since outmoded and replaced by the rectangular shields that could form a good shield wall when a well-trained Roman army unit got together. Plutarch goes on to the performance itself. The dance of the Salii is chiefly a matter of steps, for they move gracefully and execute with vigor and agility a certain shifting convolution in a quick and oft-recurring rhythm. Then there was the singing of the Carmen Salarii, the Leaper's Song. By AD 79, it was already very old, very obscure, the object of some scholarly interest among the ancient philologically minded. A few fragments have come down to us. Best shot at meaning. Sing of him, the father of the gods, appeal to the god of gods. When thou thunderest, O god of light, they tremble before thee. All gods beneath thee have heard thee thunder. But to have acquired all that is spread out, now the good, a series, or Janus. Obviously, it's not complete. Costumery and lyrics aside, the song and dance clearly had an irresistible hook. Think of it like, say, a waltz, a movement in 3-4 time that could be adopted to various other movements, but is always compelling. If you're not tone-deaf, you can't help but at least tap your toes. The poet Horace, 65 to 8 BC, writes of making a promise to the goddess Venus to grant him a favor in exchange for which he will arrange for a chorus of young boys and girls to sing her praises and with white feet stamp the ground in the Salian manner triple time. In other words, it had a good beat and you could dance to it. And this kind of appropriation does not appear to have excited any concerns about sacrilege or inappropriateness. It should be noted that Horace's wish to involve girls in his small performance in no way implies that girls could become members of the college, though the word used for their leader, Prysul, turns up in the female form, Prysula, in one epitaph of a sixteen-year-old girl a thin reed at best. If the morning ceremonies were devoted to singing and dancing, the afternoon was spent on the campus marshes, where the boys could busy themselves with some mock battle practice, entertaining, invigorating, exhausting, and hunger-producing, which was important since the day was capped by food. A feast, in fact a feast that became almost as much of a byword in Old Rome as the three-step song and dance. We return to Horace again, in his so-called Cleopatra Ode, the one starting out Nunc est bibendum, now is the time for drinking, a happy poem reflecting on the Emperor Augustus's defeat of the evil Egyptian queen, 
unmentioned but understood, was her misguided Roman lover Mark Antony, Augustus's ex-brother-in-law. The poem refers not just to vintage wine, but also to Salian feast laid out, debatably referring to the martial subject matter or the plain sumptuousness of the college's catering. Nor is Horace the only one to mention the Leaper's Feast. Suetonius tells us that Claudius was eager for food and drink at all times and in all places. Once, when he was holding court in the forum of Augustus and had caught the savor of a meal which was preparing for the Salii in the Temple of Mars hard by, he left the tribunal, went up to where the priests were, and took his place at their table. It's good to be king, they say, and free food is the best food. Suetonius goes on to say that Claudius would frequently pass out from overindulgence and that mischievous people nearby would put a feather down his throat to make him vomit. How they must have laughed. Not the sort of trick one would play on Vespasian. But then he's hardly the sort who would self-invite to someone else's dinner party. On the other hand, he was a combat veteran of long standing and two major campaigns lasting for years. Easy to imagine that the young priests of Mars, wet behind the ears and green in judgment, would invite him to their banquet. At least they wouldn't criticize him for being cheap with presents. There would be two more pre-war festivals this month, the 19th and the 23rd, the Armilustrium and the Tubalustrium, and then those with a taste or a reason to go out fighting were good to go. Why march? We've noticed before that Rome's early military adventures tended to be close to home and, of course, entirely self-defensive. In the annual cycle, March has a lot of promise for fecundity to come, but not much to offer here and now. By now, by the end of winter, the warehouses, recently brimming with a previous year's grain, was getting low. In earlier days, it might have been seen as a good time to see how the tribes across the mountain range were holding out, see if a little sharing couldn't be extorted. Food was elsewhere on the Roman mind and schedule. If we may return to the Menologia for a moment and the last point it makes, now's the time to plant three-month grain. Ninety days to harvest is a quick crop compared to the 120 to 240 days of modern spring and winter wheat. Quick and worth the effort, but still not perfect. A little judicious strong-arming of neighbors might be timely because necessary. Just a thought. By AD 79, that sort of thinking had given way to new thoughts on the Roman mind, thoughts that turned to the grain fleet. The ships had not sailed since September. The Mediterranean, delightful in summer, can be a bit of an issue from September to March, and if you are a major food importer, well, let's just say, in the right or rather wrong cirques, April could be the cruelest month, but March is an anxious second place. More on the grain question next time. As a reminder, contributions to help underwrite the production of this series are more than welcome. 
It doesn't write or perform itself, and it doesn't survive on the internet without some cash outlay. If you're in a position to help, the donation button will get you to Patreon or buy me a beer. If you're a little short just now, an upvote or mention would not be unwelcome. Until next time, thank you for listening.